Thanks, man. Appreciate your bringing that word to us from Vernon Brewer and from the Nandis. Will you pray with me? Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight as we share in your word together. Amen. Do you ever wonder why things are the way they are? Why we do the things we do? I'm not talking about things of, of cosmic significance necessarily, but, but little things. For instance, why do we park on driveways and drive on parkways? I wonder about that. Why do noses run but feet smell? Why isn't the word phonetic spelled the way it sounds? As long as we're on the subject, Chris Thompson, why isn't there a synonym for thesaurus? Why can you buy cigarettes in gas stations when smoking in gas stations is illegal? And why do you need a driver's license to buy alcohol when you can't drink and drive? Maybe you don't wonder about those things, I don't know. Have you ever wondered why things are the way they are in the church? Why we do things the way we do in churches? I have. I grew up in a United Methodist church in South Carolina, and at the front of the church there, right in front of the pulpit, we had an altar, a small altar, with two candles on, on either side of it. And it was very nice, uh, very pleasant effect. And one day, I asked the senior pastor, I said, Pastor, why is it that we have the two candles at the front of the, uh, the altar, in the front of the church there? And he said, well, the, the candle on the right symbolizes Christ, who is the light of the world. And I said, oh, okay, so maybe the candle on the left symbolizes the, the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And he said, well, no. I said, well, maybe the, the candle on the left symbolizes the glory of God the Father, right? And he said, well, no. I said, well, if the candle on the right symbolizes Christ, then what's the candle on the left for? And he said, it's for balance so that the altar looks nice. And I said, oh. <laughs> okay, I didn't know. But I wondered, do you ever wonder why we do things the way we do here at Grace Church? Well, that's been an education for me, let me tell you. You can tell I still haven't got it quite right. Um, one of the things I've gotten to do here in the last year that I've been here is give announcements on Sunday mornings from time to time, and I enjoy that, and that's fun. Uh, one morning before I was getting ready to do my first set of announcements, I I watched Galen call the week before, and you know what he does. He sits down here when he's in town, and he, it's time for the announcements. He gets up, and he walks to the center here, and he gives the announcements, maybe offers up a prayer, and uh, then he sits back down, and we have the offering or whatever part of the service is up next. And so my first Sunday giving announcements, first hour, I got up, and I stood right here, and I gave the announcements and, and the welcome and prayed for the offering. And in between services, Rick Thoman came up to me and said, uh, hey, Dave, just a suggestion. You might want to get up here on the stage, on the platform, when you give the announcements because the people in the back can't see you. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. I was watching last week, and Galen Call got up and stood right here, and he gave the announcements when it was time for the announcements. 
And Rick said, well, yes, Dave, but Galen Call is six foot three, and you're about five eight. Get up on the stage so the people in the back can see you. So I've been up here ever since. Why do we do the, the things we do the way we do them in the church, in Grace Church Roseville? Do you ever wonder? Does it, does it make sense to you? Is our worship service logical? Let me ask you about one particular element that we do about 12 times a year, and that is the Lord's Supper. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And why do we do it the way we do it? Why, why is it important? If it's so important, should we do it every week? If it's not really that important, should we do it every month? I know if you've grown up in the church like I have, you've been celebrating the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, probably ever since you can remember. But if a non-Christian were to come visit with you this morning and were to ask, ask you, why is the Lord's Supper, what is that? Why is that significant? Why is the Lord's Supper important to the life of your church? What would you tell that person? If you're a good Roman Catholic, you know why the Lord's Supper is significant. It's because the elements that you partake literally become the body and blood of Christ, and that by partaking of that, it's a means of God's grace working out your justification. At least some Roman Catholics in circles believe that. But we're not Roman Catholics. We're not denominational in the Baptistic tradition. So why is the Lord's Supper significant for us? And more pointedly, is the Lord's Supper significant to you? Is it important in your life, in the life of your church? Apparently not in all churches. The church that I grew up in would uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper probably six times a year, about twice a quarter. And morning after morning, when we'd be doing this, I would see, as a young boy, we'd come in, we'd have the altar set up in front, and I'd see couples come in the back of the church. And they'd come in, and they'd see the altar at the front of the church, and they'd kind of give each other these knowing glances, like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And then sure enough, they'd turn around, and they'd walk back out and go to an early lunch, rather than stay for the service where we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And that made an impression on me, and I wondered, well, why do we do it if people don't enjoy it? Why is it important? Well, the Lord's Supper is the subject of our passage this morning, as you may have guessed by now. Uh, we're continuing in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we're in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting at verse 17 of chapter 11. Would you turn there while I read? Paul writing to the Corinthians. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgments on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions. The Lord's Supper, instituted by Christ, a simple ritual designed to foster Christian unity, probably been the subject of more division in the church than anything else in history. Think about it. For just about as many churches as there are, there are different ways to observe the Lord's Supper. There are different thoughts on the significance of the Lord's Supper. Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists will all tell you different things regarding the Lord's Supper's significance and beyond the significance of it, how it ought to be observed. Who should administer it? Who's eligible to partake of it? Should you use one loaf or a bunch of loaves of bread? Should you use one cup or a bunch of little cups. If you want to get really controversial, should you use real wine or is grape juice okay? A lot of division, a lot of strife in church history about the Lord's Supper. And so I ask you the question again, is it worth the trouble? Is it important enough that we be divided about it? Is it important enough that we really need to observe it? Well, Paul certainly seemed to think so. And the reason he thinks so is back in verses 23 through 26. It's simply this. The reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the reason the Lord's Supper is so important to us as a church, is that it focuses us on Christ. Read with me again in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it said, this is my body. Verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we did a couple of weeks ago and will again in a few weeks, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper 
focuses us on Christ. It symbolizes his atoning work for us on the cross in the past. And it looks ahead to his promised return in the future. The Lord's Supper focuses us on Jesus Christ. You know, I had a professor at Denver Seminary named Bruce Shelley, and he pointed out to me that it's amazing how many Christians think of Christianity as a religious ethic, you know, how you ought to behave, or a system of doctrines, or a, a high-powered emotional experience, or maybe the sacred institution. But total Christianity, in a word, is Christ. And if you or I tries to reduce it, or subconsciously reduces it to one of these things I just mentioned, we're missing the whole picture. Total Christianity is Christ. He is our truth. He is our law. He is our oneness. He is our life. The Lord's Supper serves to focus us on Christ. And that is the crux of the matter. Okay, so what were the Corinthians doing that was so wrong? What were the Corinthians doing that had Paul so upset? What's, the, what's going on? What's the problem? Well, the problem is back in verses 17 to 22. The following directives, Paul says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Your church meetings are more a part of the problem than they are part of the solution. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. That phrase, goes ahead without waiting for anybody else, literally could be translated, each of you goes ahead with his own supper. What Paul is saying is when you get together, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, you're celebrating your own supper. And Paul was incensed about this. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For us to understand what the problem is exactly, we have to understand the context of the early church in Corinth. The Lord's Supper in the early church was celebrated as part of a full meal called a love feast. Only the problem in Corinth is that this love feast had not much love in it. You see, the, the meal would be celebrated in the home of one of the members of the church. They didn't have church buildings, so probably a very wealthy patron of the church would invite the church over to his house, his home, open up his home to them. And in the middle of the house was his dining room, his living area. And what was going on here was that the rich, the socially powerful, the popular, were getting to congregate in this living area, whereas the poor, the less socially adept, 
of the church were being forced into outer rooms or maybe outside the house altogether into the courtyard. Maybe because they had to bring their own food because they didn't have money to bring uh, to eat at the church or, or there wasn't enough to feed them. Maybe because they had to work late because they were poor so they had to come later for the love feast. Regardless of the reason, they were being marginalized. They were being excluded. And Paul wasn't happy about it. Paul says that these socioeconomic differences, these popular people versus the less popular people, the rich people versus the poor people, have no place at the Lord's table. He wasn't saying that it's bad for some people in the church to earn more money than other people in the church. He's just saying you have to leave that outside. Because when you come to the Lord's table, all must be equal and all must be allowed to participate. You can't go ahead with your own supper. You have to share together. Paul was incensed because he knew that the Lord's Supper by focusing us on Christ keeps the church humble and keeps the church unified. The Lord's Supper is crucial to the life of the church because by focusing us on Christ it keeps us humble and it keeps us unified. And the Corinthian church was neither. Look at verse 27. The Lord's Supper keeps us humble. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says in verses 30-31 that some of you have gotten sick and died because you're eating in an unworthy manner. God's discipline, God's judgment. The Lord's Supper keeps us humble, and the Lord's Supper keeps us unified. One of my favorite war movies is the movie Glory. And if you've seen the movie Glory, it's about a northern regiment company of Negro soldiers during the Civil War. And these Negro soldiers some of whom are freed slaves or citizens of the Union, have been called into service. They've volunteered to go fight the Confederate forces in the South. And as you can imagine, they encountered a lot of opposition and a lot of persecution, not only from the Confederates, the soldiers they were fighting against, but also from within their own ranks. In fact, at one point in the movie Glory, the servicemen's paycheck, paychecks come in. And it's been decreed by the powers that be that the black soldiers get less money than the white soldiers and officers for no other reason than because they're black. And the black soldiers get really incensed about this. And Denzel's Washington, Denzel Washington's character starts inciting revolt and anger among the ranks, saying, we don't want this. If we don't get equal pay for equal fighting and equal work, 
we're not going to take it. Tear it up. Tear it up. And he starts rallying his black brothers. Tear them up. Tear up the paychecks. Don't take the money. And then the colonel, who's in charge of this company, pulls out his pistol and fires into the air. And the crowd becomes silent. And they look at him to see what he's going to do. And he says, if you men will receive no pay, then none of us will. And he takes his paycheck and he rips it in half. And a big cheer goes up from the company. Similarly, the Lord's Supper, there's no room for hierarchy. There's no room for social elite and social outcast. The Lord's Supper keeps us humble, keeps us unified. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And Paul talks about examining yourself to see if you're worthy. He's not talking about self-examination so much for past sins, although repentance is always appropriate. Rather, he's saying that Christians should present themselves, uh, should present attitudes toward fellow believers that are in keeping with the Lord's table. He's not talking about things you've done in the past. If you're repentant, the Lord's table is always open to you, no matter how far away you feel from God at the time or have felt from God at any time. But what Paul wants you to check, wants me to check, wants the church to be aware of, is what is our attitude toward the other people that we're partaking of the Lord's table with? And if it's not good, we risk judgment by sickness or maybe even death. So the Lord's Supper keeps us humble. It also unites us. Back in the first part of the passage, Paul was really upset about the divisions in the church. He wanted them to be united around the Lord's table. James Stobaugh said that in our diversity, talking about the church, in our diversity, we're nothing more than just another social organization. But in our unity, based in love, we are the body of Jesus Christ. Literally, the hope of all creation. Eric Hoffer has observed an interesting principle about human nature. It's easier to unite people around hatred than it is love. It's easier to unite people around hatred than love. Nazi Germany is a good example. But we in the church need to be careful that we don't follow a little bit into that mentality. Anti-abortion efforts, anti-pornography drives, these are all good things. Don't get me wrong. Good things, worthy efforts for the church to undertake. But the foundation of the church cannot be an anti-something crusade. The foundation of the church is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The time Leonardo da Vinci, the great artist, painted his masterpiece, The Last Supper, he had an enemy. Leonardo's enemy was a fellow painter, a man that he had had a bitter argument with and whom he despised. In fact, he hated this man so much that when he painted the face of Judas Iscariot, he put this man's face on the painting. And he took secret, perverse delight 
in knowing that for ages to come, the face of the man who betrayed Jesus would be his personal enemy. And that everybody who knew him would recognize this man's face on the painting of the Last Supper, Judas Iscariot. And Leonardo was continuing to work on the Last Supper, and he'd paint one disciple after another, and in the meantime, he would try to work on the figure of Christ at the center of the painting. But he made no progress. And he became frustrated and confused as to why he couldn't paint Jesus. After a while, it occurred to Leonardo what the problem was. His hatred for this other painter was preventing him from being able to paint the face of Christ. It was only after he went to this man and reconciled with him and painted another face on Judas Iscariot that he was able to paint the figure of Christ the masterpiece to endure. Is there division right now between you and another believer in this church body? I'm not talking about one of you as a Vikings fan and one of you as a Packers fan. I mean some kind of unreconciliation. Maybe someone you feel has sinned against you or someone that you've sinned against, maybe without him or her even knowing about it. If there is a rift between you and a brother or sister in this body, I'm going to ask you to do something a little gutsy. Before we take the Lord's Supper in this church again, be in a few weeks, before we observe the Lord's Supper again, I want you to contact that person and make an effort to reconcile with him or her. Maybe it'll, it'll involve your having to confess some sin. Maybe it will involve your having to share some hurt feelings. Or maybe it's just you need to clear the air with somebody to make sure you're, you're both okay. But if there is division, I'm going to challenge you to make an attempt, as far as it depends on you, to be reconciled to that person. And if you don't do it, don't take the elements of the Lord's Supper next time we observe it. Because if you're unreconciled and unrepentant about being unreconciled, you risk partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's what Paul means. And given what happened to some of these Corinthians who did that, I don't want to do it. The Lord's Supper is crucial to the life of the church because by focusing us on Christ, it keeps us humble and it keeps us unified. When Charles V stepped down as Holy Roman Emperor over 400 years ago, he spent much of his time at his palace in Spain. And Charles V had six clocks in his palace. And try as he might, he could never get his six clocks to chime 
all at the same moment, all on the same hour. And he wrote in his memoirs, how is it possible for six different clocks to chime all at the same time? How is it even more impossible for the six nations of the Holy Roman Empire to live in harmony? It can't be done. It's impossible even if they call themselves Christians. Well, today, you and I know that it is, in fact, possible to have clocks in perfect harmony when they're powered by the same source and calibrated, calibrated to the same standard, Greenwich Mean Time. Likewise, it's possible to have unity in the church, but only when we're all calibrated to one standard, and that is Christ. Verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. In other words, be unified, be united. Verse 34, If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Be humble. Eat your nice meal at home before you come. The Lord's Supper is crucial to the life of this church because by focusing us on Christ, it keeps us humble and unified and loving community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the atoning sacrifice that you've made for us on the cross. Lord, a supreme example of the greatest love any of us can comprehend. And Lord, we know it pains you when there are divisions in the church universal and in local churches, local church bodies. Lord, we have much to celebrate as we look back to your work on the cross and look ahead to your second coming. Help us to continually focus on you as we exist in a body and live together seeking harmony. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.